Welcome to Choose Wisely. This is the podcast where we deconstruct food and sustainability topics with nuance and primary sources. I'm Caroline Nelson, a rancher and shepherd in Montana, and today I bring you my interview with Matthew Greco of My Health Forward. You might recognize Matthew from Instagram or TikTok. He's many things, but he's also a content creator, and that's how I first encountered his work. His content is all about the food industry at large, and he is not in agriculture, which is why I was so struck when I saw you know the first video of his that came across my timeline. It was so on the money. And I just was like, wait, where did this guy come from? Because I just know as someone who went from outside of agriculture to within it in the last six years, how it has taken every bit of those six years to even start to wrap my head around the beef industry. And Matthew has been able to do that and so much more as a a civilian, I guess, as a normal person. And I also think it's what makes him so credible to people because when a rancher tells, tells an audience things, it just, the bias is baked in. And so I try to be so careful with the content that I make to kind of cite my sources. Here's where I found this. This is a reputable, you know, source. But sometimes we just hear things best um, if they come from a neutral party. And that is what Matthew does. So he came across my For You page and I was just like, dang, not only are his facts spot on, but he doesn't fear monger. He doesn't try and scare people. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't, he's not, he's not hyperbolic. All these things that I think are so negative in the food and agriculture space on the internet. He also is just like really genuine. So he's not imbuing his information with a really strong point of view. And in fact, he's almost like a newscaster the way that he makes his videos. You'll have to look him up. He is at My Health Forward on TikTok and Instagram. And you'll see what I mean. It's kind of this straight to camera style where what's implied is here are the facts, you know, take them or leave them. He doesn't say, and here's what I think about it. You know, he doesn't have a tone. He's just, you know, here's what happened with the latest meat packer monopoly scandal. And so that is what we're here to talk about today because while Matthew's content covers such a wide range of topics in the food industry, a lot of them focus on the big four multinational conglomerates that control most of the beef processing and retailing in this country. And the packers at large are the the very small number of, you know, giant corporations that control meat processing in general. So in beef, we've got, you know, the big four, but, you know, chicken, it's the big three, pork, it's the big five. Like it's, it's similar across industries and you see a lot of the same names popping up. And so Matthew has done a ton of great work and reporting on this. And sometimes one of the things I love too is he'll report on things that are happening now. He'll also go back and be like, here's what happened in 2017. Like, let's not forget about this this wild (laughs) event that happened. And so I just had to get him on the podcast to talk about all things meat packers. 
I know today's episode will blow your mind. This is like Choose Wisely 301. Like so many of our episodes lay a foundation and this one just skyrockets into pretty high level discussions about the power in our food system, how things are structured, different, you know, antitrust <laughs> events and different government entities. And Matthew is just he was so well prepared for our interview. It was such a pleasure to talk to him. And I'm just, yeah, I'm excited for you to hear this. So you can check out Matthew online at My Health Forward on all the social platforms. He also has this incredible farm map on his website, which he says in the episode has got almost 100,000 hits already. His website is myhealthforward.com. And you can use this farm map to find local farms close to you. He's really, really passionate about local food. He also has really cool products and more in the works. So one of them that I actually have on its way to me right now is wild forage yapon tea, which I just learned is the only naturally caffeinated plant native to North America. So I'm really excited to try it. Matthew is doing a lot of really high level work on sourcing because he has so many connections with local farms. He can source really well. You know, so many companies are just really <laughs> distributing and white labeling and repackaging. And he's really building those relationships from the ground up. It's so cool. Before we get into the episode, let me quickly thank Nina and Hannah, Chelsea and Kareen, our newest regenerators over on the Choose Wisely Patreon. I am so grateful for you guys. And I'm just blown away at the folks who are supporting this independent podcast and who believe in what we're doing. So thank you so much and welcome. With that, we're going to dive right in. Here is Matthew Greco, and this is the Meatpacker Monopoly. Choose Wisely is brought to you by my small business, Little Creek Lamb and Beef. And today I want to tell you about our amazing Icelandic grass-fed lamb. So I was not actually a lamb lover before I started raising it. I had heard all this hubbub about Icelandic lamb and how good it was and how it could just be grass-fed. It was so tender and so mild. And I was actually raising my first Icelandic sheep before I had ever even tried it. And then when we got our first lamb chops back, I was just, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> we got to grow the flock. Like this stuff is amazing. So since those years, the very early years, we have this amazing group of customers who just waits so loyally and with so much excitement for our lamb to come out. And lamb for us is actually a seasonal product. We're working to try to get it in stock year round, but we're still pretty small, so we just haven't been able to do that yet. And right now is one of the rare times that we have lamb in stock. I actually just posted a restock by the cut so we've got lamb chops, stew meat, ground lamb. We have these new amazing garlic and rosemary lamb bratwursts. They're a brand new product for us. They're just amazing. And we have sampler boxes. So if you're like, I don't know what I want, you pick. We've got boxes that come with seasoning, that come with recipes, and there's a couple different sizes and kind of iterations of that. So you can choose what fits you best. We also have a bundle called the hoof and horn, which is a lamb and beef combo box. It comes with ground lamb, ground beef, and then our beef and lamb seasonings, our cowgirl seasoning and our shepherd seasoning. 
So check out our bundles. Sometimes it's just easier to let us pick. And we have packed thousands of boxes now. We have a good sense of what folks will like. So we would love to stock you up on some regeneratively raised, rotationally grazed, no antibiotic, no hormones, all the good stuff, Icelandic grass-fed lamb from our ranch to your table. So check it out at littlecreekmontana.com. Oh my gosh, Matthew, I'm so excited to have you on Choose Wisely. Thank you for being here. Can you please just kick us off? Tell me about your story and how you started getting into sharing content online, getting interested in, in our food system, because you just started popping up on my timelines on different apps. And I think I said this to you in an email. I was like, you were the first person making content about the food industry and about meat where I was like, yes, like he's actually bringing enough nuance to this and he's calling out the right people. Well, first off, thank you for having me on, Caroline. I'm very excited to be on here. I've been, you know, observing everything you've been doing, not for as long as you have been doing it, but for the last like year or so. So it's really exciting to uh, finally get to speak to you. So, you know, as to my story, so I grew up kind of out, you know, a little bit in the country, more on the East Coast. And so agriculture and ranching isn't as common and isn't as large here as people, you know, attribute it to where you're from. And my family, we had a really great, you know, local farm that we had a meat share and a CSA from. So it was something that I was always raised with, but I was not necessarily always conscious of. And I had a little bit of farming background, like when I was 13 or 14, I started working down the road from me on a farm. Funny enough, the, the main thing that we uh, raised and grew was Christmas trees. So oh. not, not anything edible, but still very <laughs> fun. And I learned, you know, a lot of the basics of agriculture there. Mm -hmm. And then it was when I went to school that I really found out the connection between what you eat and your mental and physical health. And so mm -hmm. obviously, you know, my freshman year, I was eating dorm food, was really not my best mentally or physically. And that's when I started making a lot of those connections. And then in my classes at the same time, I also found that a lot of my professors were really pushing the narrative both from you know health as well as the uh, environmental and business mm -hmm. that we needed to, in order to you know solve food insecurity and global hunger and all these things, we needed monocropped agricultural systems mm -hmm. and we needed to kind of back these big businesses. And it all sounded great. But then when I started doing a lot of my own research and you know kind of doing a deep dive into regenerative agriculture, that's when I found out that there was, you know, definitely a lot more to the story and other solutions that they weren't even considering. And when I would challenge the narrative in classes, I would just immediately be shut down and there was no discussion. And so that's when I was like, okay, I actually need to start researching this on my own. And then that's why I had the idea of, you know, starting My Health Forward. Originally, it was a little bit more on the side of uh, focus because I've always had issues in my entire life with focus. I have a lot of energy, you know, I'm somebody who loves to do a lot of research, but I found it difficult at times, especially with things that I wasn't necessarily the most interested in is, you know, sitting down and actually going through it. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to find, you know, what are the habits, lifestyle factors, foods to eat to be my best, you know, in terms of being able to yeah. focus. Mm -hmm. And that's when I found, you know, a lot of people my age, it, same thing with them. I mean, there's a lot of college students out there who are, you know, being medicated for these things, which is really just, mm -hmm. you know, a blanket solution to something that's much deeper. 
So mm -hmm. that's kind of how it started. And then as I started, you know, sharing some of the research that I was looking into that was being done, you know, by uh, great people like Andrew Huberman, who, you know, now is a very popular podcaster. But when I started, you know, sharing that, I found that there was a really need for it. And then I also found among my peers, especially, you know, people are going to school, we're so disconnected. And in general, the, the US population is so disconnected from our food sources. So nobody mm -hmm. really knows how their food's grown, as well as where it's coming from. And so that's when I found a great opportunity to be able to connect people. And then while I was researching it myself and learning a lot about it, then I was able to, you know, share that with my peers. Because what's great about people like yourself and a lot of other farmers is you can share what you're doing every day out in the field. But a lot of people who don't have that background need something because, you know, they learn more through articles and news and media and that type of thing. In order to, for it to really click with them, they have to, you know, consume content that's in those same formats from somebody mm -hmm. who's more just speaking to a microphone mm -hmm. and, you know, sharing some research and facts and stuff. That's when it really clicks. So that's what I found, you know, that's, that's the opportunity for me. I'm not going to be necessarily out there in a field showing, you know, some, uh, some use in cattle like you are. Mm -hmm. I'll probably mm -hmm. be, you know, in front of a camera sharing research. And in some ways, it, it can be more credible to see you that way. Even if I'm saying the same thing, it's like, well, of course she thinks that she's a rancher. Like she's, I've had people be like, you're just a shill for the meat industry. <laughs> I'm like, I wish they were paying me. Like I'm doing so much <laughs> free promotion. Um, so, so interesting. So I did want to just say, so my health forward, so you started, it's a supplement and like sort of a, would you, do you call your, your product supplements? Is that a fair thing to say? Great question. So the first product I released is called Focus Forward. So that I really made for myself yeah. because, you know, when I was doing all that research on focus and concentration and attentiveness, I wanted to look towards, you know, natural herbal supplements that mm -hmm. then I could take to help boost that. So I really made it for myself and my peers. And then when I found that, you know, it was working, people wanted it. That's when I then, you know, launched it obviously on my website. Mm -hmm. But everything else that, you know, I, I have a few other products up now. I have Yao Pond, which is the only uh, native plant to North America that's caffeinated. Wow. I have, I think, around 55 different varieties of heirloom seeds that are open pollinated. I'm working on a uh, sun cream that's tallow-based with zinc oxide as well, and a long list of other products that are not supplements. So yeah. I definitely you know, don't want to be attributed to only selling supplements, I would mm -hmm. say, because mm -hmm. I think there is somewhat of a trend with people in the health space that they start posting a lot of these videos, you know, kind of telling people, avoid this, avoid that, and yeah, they start yeah. selling a supplement. Yeah. And I just don't want to be, you know, attributed with that because that wasn't my approach. And mm -hmm. that's not, you know, the hope with my my business. It's so interesting because it wasn't until I started doing more research about you that I even understood that My Health Forward was a business. I truly, because you just came up so much on my on my TikTok feed. And I think a lot of people will recognize your voice immediately. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh, that guy. And you went on a very similar journey as I did where when I started learning this stuff, probably like 10, 15 years ago, I'm like, wait, guys, like, I have to tell you, we have this backwards, we've been pointing fingers in the wrong places. And that's why I just had to bring you on because you've been doing a ton of content about the 
hackers. And that's really where I want to kick off today. I'm calling this episode the Meat Packer Monopoly because great title. We really that is the system that we have in the meat industry and it's kind of like the open secret. We have the public and journalists that have focused a lot on you know land management, feedlots. There's been a lot of scrutiny on the ranchers, you know, talking about methane emissions and you know ranchers being responsible for that. And I always think like, what are we not talking about? What When something is dominating conversation, what are we missing? And what we're missing is essentially four corporations that are called the big four. Would you kick us off on just an overview of what the Packers are and who they are? Happy to do that. <laughs> so the big four meat Packers are Cargill, Tyson Foods, which I assume many people have heard of, Brazilian-based JBS, and National Beef Packing Co., which is also owned by Brazilian producer Marfig Global Foods. That's so interesting that two of our big four corporations, and I always call them multinationals instead of corporations because I think the picture we need to paint is much more of a global company, but the two of them are based in Brazil, and we're going to come back to the Brazilian beef situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's these big four corporations, and when we say packer, like what does that mean? What do they, what do these businesses do? Great question. So, and you've probably seen firsthand like the entire supply chain. So I assume most of your listeners know a lot of that, but essentially what the packers do is after the cattle leave the feedlots where they're essentially brought to the weight, then they're sent to the packers, which, you know, control this key supply chain at the end. Mm -hmm. And so they then, you know, slaughter, butcher, package and distribute the beef as well as meat and pork. You know, this is mm -hmm. specific to beef, but it's really all types of meat that mm -hmm. are then sent to retailers. So then when people go to, you know, Walmart or Costco or any of the big stores or fast food chains, they're buying beef that, you know, was slaughtered and packaged by the big four. Yes. Thank you. So the, the packing is kind of the packing and the processing. And I heard it said that the beef industry is like an hourglass where you've got you know, a ton of ranchers on one side, you've got a ton of consumers eating all this beef on the other side. And then in the middle, you have this pinch point that is the packers where you're kind of funneling beef into fewer and fewer hands. Uh, I'll just do the, a really quick overview where um, mm -hmm. beef in America is born on family ranches. The average herd size is about 100 cows. It's actually pretty small. They spend the first eight-ish months on that family ranch. They're born on grass. They eat grass. They're then sold to um, what's called a stalker or a backgrounder. And this could be another phase of grass. It could also be kind of like a pre-feed lot, um, like a dry lot, uh, where they start kind of introducing more grains to the cattle. And then they're going to be going to the feedlots in general after that. So most ranchers, when you think of like Marlboro Man in the truck, yep. you know, they're doing the beginning phase of beef production. They're raising calves and they're called cow-calf operations. So that's what we have all around us. And even though like we're in the beef industry, we don't see the other phases. Like we might see a stalker or a backgrounder operation running yearlings on grass. We don't really have many feedlots around here. A lot of them are in the Midwest. And that's because they're going to be near these packing plants. Yeah, exactly. And 
the packing plants are massive, and those are the plants that are owned by the big four. And the big four have kind of a chokehold on, is it 85% of all? uh, Yeah, so different estimations say somewhere between 80 to 85%. We don't know the exact number, but the overwhelming majority, they would easily be classified as an oligopoly. Oligopoly. This is my new favorite word. And you mentioned earlier that we're talking about beef today, but it's not just beef. And that's absolutely right. Um, We'll see some of the same names like Tyson. We know, okay, they also are part of the oligopoly that controls the chicken industry, you know, along with Purdue. Um, I think Tyson or Purdue is also in pork and then you get like Hormel. So you start to see a lot of the same names and then they also buy a lot of (laughs) plant-based meat, meat companies as well. So yeah. Okay. So these four, their hands are definitely everywhere. If you looked (laughs) at one of the charts, like the classic chart that people know of is like the Unilever Procter and Gamble in all of like the package brands. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure, I don't know if anybody's actually done this. It would be a good idea. But if there was a chart put down for all of the beef brands and where this, you know, they're sold in stores, people would be shocked because it's really everywhere. It's everywhere. So, and I was reading about it. So like a lot of Costco meat, McDonald's, grocery store, like just when you go to the grocery store, 80% chance it will have gone through one of these processors. Almost certain that when you go to a grocery store, obviously not every, you know, Mm -hmm. meat, but the majority of them will be packed by these big four. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, like the Walmart BJ Kroger, which is the same, or if it's Mm -hmm. a more, you know, regional grocery store no matter where people live, they all know like the regional grocery stores that they go to that Mm -hmm. seem more localized, but it really is, you know, the same supply chains, the same distributors, because when you own that key supply chain stage, you know, then you're pretty much being able to own the the shelf space regardless of the store. Well said. And, you know, we see the Cisco trucks go by, there's all kinds of distributors distributing this meat. And you wouldn't really be able to know, like if you're just buying regular beef from the grocery store, it doesn't say like where it was slaughtered or packed, you know, it just has a brand name on it. So it's very hard to know, are you lining (laughs) these corporations pockets? So I rag on these companies a lot. And it's, I think sometimes it can come off as I'm just anti like big business. I mean, I am anti oligopoly. I don't think that's good for democracy, but they have a pretty like bad record in terms of just how these companies behave. So one of the first things that comes to top of mind is that JBS, and you've been talking about them a fair bit on your page. There was a story about an investigation that found migrant children that were working in JBS slaughterhouses. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that's very concerning. And, you know, when we talk a lot about the 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 border crisis this isn't you know necessarily getting into who should or shouldn't this is really humanitarian crisis and this yeah. is a perfect example of that because then you have young children who are take being taken advantage of and who their youth is really being stripped of them and you know mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into this story but like the big thing that that stood out to me was when i heard that they were falling asleep in school mm-hmm. and you know you just think back to when you're in like middle school or, you know, high school, and you already had a hard enough time passing and getting through everything you were trying to. But then imagine you're not even from the country. English isn't your first language. And then you're working an overnight shift several days a week, 
doing, you know, hazardous waste. And hazardous that's just, waste, it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And the, the children, right, it was discovered because one of the teachers, you know, was saying, like, why, why do you keep falling asleep? And I, and I think one of the children just innocently said, like, I had to work last night at the slaughterhouse or something. And I, I laugh because it's, it's like a, almost like a trauma laugh. Like it's so absurd. It's so outrageous that you can't believe that this is real. And that's a lot of these stories that came out about these JBS national Tyson. I'm like, this can't be, this has got to be exaggerated, but it's actually only the tip of the iceberg. So they're basically, there's these independent contractor companies that are actually hiring, hiring quote unquote, um, the migrant children. Is that, is that true? Correct. Yeah. So the New York Times was the first one, I believe, to really break this story. So they had an investigative team that found that there was uh, 31 or total 100 children at different Packers. But looking just at JBS, there was 31 children as young as 13 years old mm. who were working those, you know, overnight cleaning shifts. And it was at three plants. So it was one in Nebraska and then two in Minnesota. And, you know, as you alluded to, members of the community have, you know, reported that there seemed to be these practices going on for years mm. and nobody really listened. Mm -hmm. But the uh, children, you know, they were migrants who were trafficked across the southern border. Mm. They were given false identifications and records to gain the jobs. By who? That's still unknown. You know, it's part of the federal investigation. But what we do know, as you said, is that the children were employed by JBS's cleaning contractor. In this instance, it was Packer Sanitation Services, known as PSSI. And so JBS claims that they were unaware of the child mm -hmm. labor at their own Classic. plant, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, as, as you could guess, investigators and experts find this very unlikely. You know, we can't say for certain, but it, it seems very unlikely that they would not know about that. And one of like the, the primary indicators is that at one of the, uh, the plant, the JBS plants, uh, the one in Nebraska, the children that worked the overnight shifts, they had to clock in and out by using a biometric time lock that scanned their faces. No. So you would think, regardless of whether it's some, you know, AI system that's doing that, somebody had to have been monitoring it all and reviewing it. And they, you know, clearly had to know because the report also said that the uh, children, that their name tags, they would scratch out the names to try to, you know, cover up their age as well as yeah. who they were, because obviously nothing matched up. And the New York Times said, once they actually sent the investigators there, it was so clear and obvious because, you know, they were so small. They were playing around. They were speaking Spanish. Oh, and for JBS to, you know, playing. try to argue that they had no clue of this, it's really just uh, very concerning and sad. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's sadly, you know, kind of expected that they would just try to recluse himself from responsibility because mm -hmm. PSSI has only been fined, I believe, like $1.5 million to date. JBS has had, you know, nothing held against them. Right. And they get to wash their hands a bit because they can say, we fired this this other company that supplied, you know, these workers, um, children and guaranteed that company is just going to rename itself. And, you know, they'll be, they'll be back to it, um, shortly. And, and I think like, this would be fascinating to do a whole episode on one day, but it really shows us how much of our food system, not just in the meat industry, but widely relies on migrant workers who, there are so many human rights abuses. Um, I'm not saying that that's always the case. Um, I've been really fascinated by a lot of the TikTok farmers who share, like, um, gosh, I'm trying to think, uh, Shay. Do you follow Shay's work? He's an onion farmer. They grow all kinds of stuff. I'm not sure if I do. I'm very bad with names. 
very like Shay, if you're listening, I'm sure you're doing great work. So hopefully we can connect. Sorry, I didn't like, recognize your name. He's super transparent about what he pays his migrant workers, the housing conditions. Like there are farmers out there doing a really good job with this. And also this is just a system that is very abusable. Like it's rife for abuse yes. because you have people who are vulnerable, who need this work and are willing to, they'll keep their mouth shut and, and protect these very powerful companies. And just briefly, I'm, I'm slowly trying to put together this episode about the hog and poultry depopulations during COVID. Did you hear about this? I did, but I'm, I would say I'm not at well researched enough to be able yeah. to, to talk on this yet. But if if you know more details that you know I'd be I'd love to hear it now. And I only know a little bit. Um, but basically there's not much information out about it. And one of the reasons is that a lot of the employees that were doing these po- depopulations, which is essentially killing, asphyxiating yeah. hogs and chickens, were migrant workers who may be English as a second language. And basically just are keeping their mouth shut about this. Like they're not um, ones to get the cell phone out and say like, here's what's going on in the hog houses. Um, so it's kind of like a, another open secret. And I, I've been having a heck of a time trying to get anybody to talk to me about it and get any hard facts, even from the government. of Because the government was facilitating this. Yeah, the, the government is directly involved in this. And what's ironic is they, you know, the federal investigators have now said they're expanding their investigation into the meat industry as a whole, as well as okay. uh, the produce industry. But oh. you'd have to imagine if the, the the migrants are getting their hands on false identifications and records and are being transported to all the locations where all the meat processing is, somebody on a high scale is having to back this. Mm. You know, who exactly that is, we don't know. But right. New York Times report even said that you know, after the whole uh, PSSI thing kind of blew up, that the kids were easily able to find jobs at other places oh, and start working God. elsewhere. So it's not like then they were, you know, oh, let's protect the kids. Let's stop this. It's just, right, oh, now they're right. going to go somewhere else. And as you said, it'll be a different company uh-huh. that they're, you know, hiring them through. Oh, my gosh. Um, let's talk about more bad things, JBS. has <laughs> done. So um, you were talking about how there's probably somebody high up that knows about this. I I completely agree with you. It'd be hard uh, not not to know. Um, they'd have to be, you know, not doing their job at all. Um, an article just came out about JBS and bribery. So I do want to be clear that this, as far as I know, and I'm I'm interested in your take, this was bribery of Brazilian officials in Brazil over actually rotten meat entering the supply chain where <laughs> I'm like, this cannot be real. Yeah, there's, and there is a lot of layers to this. So, and, and the first thing we should say is, it, you know, if you're a consumer out there, you have beef that you got at the grocery store, mm-hmm. it's not rotten. You don't need to throw it out. This yeah. is looking a little, you know, a little, uh, a few years previous, obviously the implications and, you know, the collusion and all of that is still going yeah. on. But mm-hmm. for right now, if you're having beef for dinner, you're totally fine. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so uh, if we, I guess, first could talk about rotten meat, and then we can get a little bit further into some of the, you know, involvement of government officials in Brazil, Mm -hmm. and maybe some questions around whether the United States, you know, was also involved in that. So Mm -hmm. JBS bribed 
Brazilian government officials and inspectors, as you said, so that they could get away with selling rotten meat. So they also sold rotten meat with acid and carcinogenic chemicals so that they could mask it. And they also used potato, water, and even cardboard mixed with the meat. No. I know. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> shocking. So this was in March 2017 when the investigators discovered that the rotten meat was being sold. But they concluded, you know, the practice had been going on for years, as, as expected. And the investigators traced bribes paid to 2,000 officials in Brazil. 2,000 officials. And Whoa. then here's where things get very interesting. <laughs> so only a few months prior to this discovery, the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service Administrator, Al Alamanza, helped overturn the USDA's 13-year ban on Brazilian beef imports. And then after investigators discovered rotten meat, the FSIS still allowed JBS to keep selling their meat to the U.S. for three more months, even though a long list of other countries had immediately banned it. And then the FSIS claimed that no rotten meat entered the U.S. and that Brazil's food safety measures were sufficient. However, the advocacy group Food and Water Watch did not agree with this statement, as probably most of us would not, <laughs> and said that yeah. nearly 70% of sampled Brazilian beef factories contain strains of listeria. And then when the FSIS finally did suspend JBS and Brazilian beef imports in June 2017, Alamanza re retired within a month. And then within a week of his retirement, so probably like five, six weeks later, JBS hired him to be their head of uh, global food safety and quality assurance. No. So as you can guess, this kind of raises some uh, serious questions as to, you know, collusion between JBS and USDA. So can I just say this back to you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> to see if this, do I have this right? Okay, so 2017, it's uncovered. JBS packing plants in Brazil have been covering up rotten meat with occasionally carcinogenic chemicals, all kinds of funky additives to cover that up. That meat did not go into the U.S. However, there was kind of a, an overlap where there was some concerns. Imports were still allowed in the U.S., and Brazilian beef has been banned, allowed, banned, allowed. And then after it was allowed, the main guy at the FSIS, which is kind of like the F FDA, it's like food safety. So um, it's a part of the USDA. It's like the food hmm. safety inspection as part of the you know, USDA. Thank you. Okay. So that guy then retired and then went and worked for JBS as like head of <laughs> their head food Correct. safety guy. And what? Even though they still hold to this day that none of that rotten meat entered the U.S., it did enter Europe and <gasps> it was sent to schools and, you know, people in Brazil ate it. So for the most part, it seems, according to what they say, that it didn't enter the U.S., mm -hmm. although, you know, given the timeline of all those things you just mentioned, mm -hmm. it might have, but we do know it went elsewhere. And yeah. this is just one of those things that, you know, across borders, we don't want these corporations to be selling rotten meat to mm -hmm. people because then, you know, Children are going to get sick. People are going to get sick mm -hmm. while they're also spending their own money thinking mm -hmm. that they're, you know, giving themselves nutrients. It's just pretty right. crazy. Um, one of the things I think we should touch on is Brazilian beef imports. And I try to be so careful not to fear monger and not to shame. Like, I think there's this attitude sometimes in the, maybe it's the regenerative world or even just the consumer world where they're like, oh, 
it's not just that I feel like they're like weird about Brazilian beef because they're being, I'll just say it like, I feel like they're being racist about it. They're like, it can't be as good as American beef. It's from Brazil. It's like, what does that mean? Like why? And they use, well, deforestation, deforestation. And I'm like, okay, that's really serious. And that's, that's valid. And we should talk about that. But I don't want to just say like blanket statement. Oh, we can't trust imported beef. I don't think that's true. However, I think it's pretty weird for a country that raises so much of the world's beef supply chain for us to be importing so much Brazilian beef. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, so the same time that the investigators discovered the bribery, this was also when they first discovered that JBS was sourcing beef from you know illegal deforestation mm-hmm. operations. So it was March 2017, and IBAMA, which is Brazil's essentially Brazil's Environmental Protection Agency, they raided two of the JBS meatpacking sites, and they discovered that JBS had purchased fifty nine thousand head of cattle from operations, you know, that illegally deforested the Amazon rainforest. And so, as expected, JBS denied these allegations. <laughs> but then, federal prosecutors in June twenty twenty, so three years later, again revealed that JBS was still sourcing cattle from, you know, illegal deforestation operations. Prosecutors in the U.S.? So this was prosecutors in Brazil. So we'll get to the DOJ in a few minutes. Okay. Okay. But this was uh, still prosecutors in Brazil, again, stemming from Obama's raid. Mm -hmm. And from uh, July 2019 to June 2020, so around a year, you know, a little less than a year, Mm -hmm. they estimated that 17% of JBS's cattle came from ranching operations with irregularities, and the main one being illegal deforestation. Oh and again, what's interesting, if we go back to that Al Alamanza timeline, this revelation came four months after the USDA approved JBS and Brazilian meats to be sold in the US again. <laughs> I have this saying where I'm like, everything important is boring. And what I mean by that is like, we're not going to save the food chain by getting rid of plastic straws and doing stuff that's sexy and and flashy and easy to talk about. Like the stuff that's really happening that we really need to fix is like corruption and collusion within obscure government agencies yes. that is clouded in bureaucracy that nobody cares to learn about. Like that's I call it like six guys in trench coats. Like six guys in trench coats. <laughs> I, that's that's a good saying. Um okay, take me to the DOJ situation. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so now let's move to the DOJ. So in 2020, JBS was forced to pay a $256 million fine to the U.S. Department of Justice. Despite this, the U.S. government continued to create government contracts with JBS. And so Politico was actually able to get a, uh, through a Freedom of Information Act request, they were able to get access to documents that were written by USDA Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack. Mm-hmm. And so the documents revealed that Vilsack continued to create government contracts with JBS, and his reasoning in the letters was that barring JBS from government contracts could hurt taxpayers because the company has so few competitors. Mm -hmm. And so right there, he is already admitting that he knows that they're such a dominant player and there is an oligopoly, but yet Mm -hmm. he is really not going to do anything about it. And in addition to that, JBS has received over $100 million that's known of in assistance in just the last few years from the U.S. government largely through a lot of the, you know, COVID bailout funds. So essentially, the fine to the DOJ could be seen as a payment from JBS to the US government 
to continue doing what they're doing because no mm -hmm. real action has been taken against them. Mm -hmm. And you would think that, oh, if JBS has been doing these things to hurt primarily American ranchers and farmers, mm -hmm. then those ranchers and farmers should be the ones who receive the money from the fine. But from every single thing I could find, there's no evidence that any of that money was actually given to farmers and ranchers and the DOJ and the SEC just pocketed it all. Oh my gosh. And so let's, let's explain also that what they were um, paying the fine for was price fixing, right? Correct. It was price, price fixing was the main point. And we can also get a little bit further into that uh, in a few <laughs> minutes because that yeah. also, you know, has since gotten worse, you know, with COVID in the uh -huh. last few years. Uh -huh. And it's probably, you know, the most important topic here long term. A lot of these other things obviously are very important, but this is, I would say, the longest standing issue is the mm -hmm. price fixing. And the way that this hurts ranchers, and I think we'll go back to the supply chain just really quickly because this is it's just hard to wrap your head around it. I'm in the industry and I still find it confusing. You know, the cow calf operations, when your calves are ready to sell, let's say you have a hundred calves, um, you have a couple options. You can sell them direct by contract to somebody who's at the next stage of production. So maybe a backgrounder or a, or a stalker, even sometimes direct to a feedlot. Mm -hmm. And there, I should also say there are small family owned feedlots. So all feedlots yes. are not the same. This is very important. I've been to some feedlots that I was like, dang, I could live here. Like, <laughs> this is actually pretty nice. Like, I'm all about grazing animals, but I, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here. Your other option when you're selling your cattle is to take them to market. And in both yeah. of those cases, the price that you get is basically based on a commodity price that you have no control over as a rancher. Like I go to market and I don't get to say, Hey, these are great cows because of this and this and this. Um, I'm total, I just get what I get and I don't get Yeah, upset. You have no control over the price. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what's been happening is these allegedly, allegedly these big four corporations have been fixing the market so that these prices stay low to ranchers. And they can do that because something like 70% of all cattle do not ever go to sale on the open market. They are privately contracted directly from these big packers, directly with feedlots, and we never see what those prices are. And because they can essentially collude with each other and all agree exactly. like on a price ceiling, they can artificially keep prices low. Yes, which you know most consumers will never know this, but it's one of like the key mechanisms also for all you listeners out there, why you've been paying more for your beef the last few years. So mm -hmm. it's not only hurting the people who are actually raising, you know, the meat that you're eating, it's also hurting, you know, your, your pocketbooks. So well said. And if we want our food system to be more sustainable, we need different grazing practices, blah, 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 you know. Ranchers can't do that. They can't input expensive infrastructure and build, you know, let's make a water trough away from the riparian area. Precisely. Like these sustainable initiatives cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, which most ranchers right now are barely getting by. And I'm talking about the cow-calf operators. We are losing many of them annually. So we have just like a continually shrinking number and what that does is then it causes ranching to also consolidate so yes. it's like the same process is happening it squeezes out the small guys so it's it's really bad for you know individuals rural communities who are losing you know their culture and local economies and it's bad 
for the environment and land stewardship. Precisely. And then, you know, when that consolidation happens and the squeezing on the margins, then it forces ranchers and producers to use more conventional practices. Because for all the listeners out there, if they're actually raising their cattle on pastures all the time, it's going to take at least an extra year to get that Mm -hmm. cattle slaughtered. And it's going to cost astronomically more money. So Mm -hmm. if, you know, all of you out there are wondering why isn't there more grass-fed, grass-finished beef, Mm-hmm. This is another reason why it's mm-hmm. you know it's not really up to the farmers and ranchers because of the overall market dynamics that have just been shoved upon them and they're really being held at gunpoint almost by mm-hmm. these four mm-hmm. packers. So if we want to get into a, a little story time now, yes. we can talk about <laughs> that when when that price fixing happened because this was really shocking and I think a lot of people might actually remember this initial story but they don't really know what came of it. So in August 2019, there was a fire at the Holcomb, Kansas Tyson meatpacking plant. And that plant had handled around 5% of beef process in the US. And there was a fire, it burned down. You can look up you know, the original stories, but the beef packers raised the prices they charged retailers and also cut prices paid to the beef producers as a direct result of this incident. Mm-hmm. And the packers said that lost processing capacity was to blame for their actions. But Mm -hmm. in the weeks following the fire, if you look at the USDA data, it showed that beef industry actually processed 5,000 more head of cattle than in the three weeks before the fire. So they pretty much just used the fire, you know, as an excuse to start gouging prices and undercutting producers. And if we look at the USDA price spread, that kind of reveals how much the packers extorted prices. So uh, for all the listeners out there, this is essentially, you know, the margin. It's a difference between what the processors, the packers, you know, pay for the live cattle and then what they charge to the retailers who sell it at the stores you buy mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much, you know, their margin. And between 2016 to 2018, the average price spread was 21 per 100 pounds. The price spread more than tripled right after the Holcomb fire and hit $67.17 per 100 pounds, which was a record at the time. And then this just worsened and continued when COVID hit. So in April 2022, nearly half of the country's beef processing capacity was slowed. Again, this is the key supply chain owned by these packers. So by May 2020, the spread between what packers, two years you know, previous to when half of the capacity was slowed, the spread between what packers paid ranchers and charged retailers increased to $279 per hundredweight. So this is a 13-fold increase from the average between 2016 to 2018. And as we discussed, since the packers have an oligopoly on processing at over 80%, they're able to, at the same time, cut what ranchers received by 20 to 40%, all while increasing what they charge to retailers. So the price spread has decreased, you know, since these records, but Mm -hmm. there's still the same significant disparity and, you know, packers are still Mm -hmm. reaping the biggest piece of the pie. Um, it's, it makes my blood boil to hear this. Yes. So the Packers have allegedly reportedly increased their profits 400% since 2015. Correct. And we see this across the food system and across sort of yeah. corporations throughout. Um, we see this in big oil, like during mm-hmm. COVID, everybody used COVID as an excuse to squeeze and it created in part a huge amount of inflation around the world. And the price fixing that we're talking about 
we're talking about like one or two incidents. There have been so many. There's it's been like, waves and waves and waves of lawsuits. <laughs> Whack-a-mole. Like there's just popping up price fixing lawsuits. And these companies, they must just have a line item in there. It's just like settling price fixing lawsuits is just built into the budget. Um, I want to read you a, a paragraph from Drover's magazine. So Sonic, Arby's, Burger King, Whataburger, Hardee's, and Carl's Jr. filed a 94-page complaint against Cargill, Tyson, JBS, and National, claiming that the four have been fixing prices and artificially constraining beef supplies since 2015. Similar claims were made previously in a lawsuit filed by RCAF USA and National Farmers Union. So some of these lawsuits are, are like on behalf of ranching groups. Some of them are right. on behalf of retailers. So everybody is all getting taken advantage of. To me, I laugh. It's like, it's bad when Burger King or, you know, yeah, Arby's it's bad is when like, those, those fast food giants are mad. <laughs> yeah, when they're like, we're taking, being taken advantage of. JBS, actually, they pled guilty to price fixing. Right. So it's not just that they're um, like settling and not admitting guilt. They're actually pleading guilty in some of these cases. Yes. They price fixed on chicken via their brand mm -hmm. Pilgrim's Pride, and they paid the Justice Department 110 million in 2020. So that's like separate <laughs> from the yes. other payments. And the like, former Ag Secretary uh, Sonny Perdue, he conducted investigation which concluded that the Giants did purposefully extort prices. But then in June 2022, the Supreme Court refused to even hear the most recent case that was brought by our calf that was saying that the Packers imported cattle from Canada and Mexico at a loss and closed slaughter plants on purpose just to lower prices that they would pay the ranchers. I'm so glad you said that. Let's stick there for a minute because this gets to something really important that I wanted to mention, which is a lot of our grass fed beef in grocery stores is Brazilian beef. And Correct. There is no way for consumers right now to tell the difference because we have a gap, a loophole in our mm -hmm. country of origin labeling laws. And this is, again, everything important is boring. But like if you think about it, for the listeners, everything you eat, your noodles, your pasta, your your avocados, you know, made in Mexico, like we see where everything comes from. You don't have this with meat. And this was a global trade organization dispute. Like this went, yes. I think Canada sued the US and the WTO, the World Trade Organization, over this. We were trying to, I forget all the details of this. If you if you remember them better than me, jump in. But um, we were trying to initiate to close that gap and say like, hey, we need to, to say where beef mm -hmm. comes from right on the packaging. We got sued in like global court. Yes. I don't I, I don't know where that takes place. What kind of giant courtroom that that takes place in, but um and we lost. And so for whatever reason, um, we're actually like not allowed right now to have country of origin labeling on meat. And it creates a lot of disadvantage to American ranchers because when we raise grass-fed beef, we're doing it with certain ecological principles. We have these great genetics, exactly. like we have higher input costs into this beef. Meanwhile, like you said, JBS and National, these Brazilian companies, can on purpose flood the market with cheaper Brazilian grass-fed mm -hmm. beef. It's grass-fed. It's Amazonian rainforest-fed <laughs> grass-fed beef. Um, they can process it here in the U.S. so they can take then, these carcasses on cold storage shipping containers. It's ground up here. Boom. It's slapped with 
uh, you know, product, product of, of the USA. USA because yeah. all it has to do is be packaged here. And it's really, you know, if some of the listeners out there, if you go to, you know, grocery stores or even Whole Foods and you look at the packages for grass-fed, grass-finished beef, you'll often see Australia, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay. And <laughs> obviously, if, you know, American farmers had access to the same weather and pastures as a lot of those places, especially Australia, you might see more grass-fed and grass-finished beef. But mm we really don't have a lot of the pastures available to farmers to make that, you know, as accessible here. So then it is a big issue when beef imported from those countries then essentially decoys customers into thinking they're buying grass-fed, grass-finished mm -hmm. beef raised by American farmers, when in reality, it's really not, and it's all packaged by a corporation. Mm -hmm. And there is really no way to tell the difference. I'm glad that we're seeing like Whole Foods and certain individual retailers will have their own labeling specifications. Yeah. But if I just go down to Bob's grocery, you know, in Townsend, it's so funny because we're in beef country. Is that beef going to be from Montana? Hell no. Some which of that's is, probably... Which is so <laughs> ironic because, you know, no matter for the listeners out there, no matter where you live in the United States, there are people nearby you who are mm -hmm. raising cattle. And for the most part, that because the four packers are able to control everything is just being shipped to the Midwest mm -hmm. or shipped to these packing yes. sites. When in reality, if you had better relationships and connections to these farmers and ranchers, then they would be able to invest in the local infrastructure to then sell you that beef. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's so interesting, because we process at a very small lo local USDA inspected butchery, um, we pay quite a bit for processing. And I know that it's probably not enough, you know, to pay all their mm -hmm. employees a livable wage. Like I know that I'm not saying that they're charging me too much, um, but it's still a lot for us. We pay a thousand dollars plus per head of beef, which might represent, I mean, that represents a big share of our whole total expenses going into that steer. Generally, I would say it costs us like 2,500 to $3,000 total to raise a steer to finish weight. And quite significant. It's yeah, it's quite yeah. a lot. So we're now competing against my local supermarket that has imported Brazilian beef, slaughtered at a, a slaughterhouse in the Midwest, doing fifteen thousand head a day, employing migrant workers who are not paid sufficiently, and they're only undercutting me by like a dollar. I'm yeah. only you know when I actually look at like organic, you know, or like grass fed, like a, like a uh, similar type of meat to what we're yeah. doing. Sometimes it's even more expensive than what we're raising. And I know how much they're just reaming everyone. It really is shocking because people have been, you know, decade after decade tricked into thinking that they need to buy all their food from these mega grocery stores. And these mega yeah. grocery stores have, you know, Walmart, for example, have a very simple business model where they've gone in and they've knocked out all the local competition right. by having very right. low prices. And then after a time, they usually are increasing the prices. <laughs> but overall, they're just destroying the local economy. Yes. And they're making it very difficult for people to find fresh and nutritious food. You nailed it. And we have sometimes ranchers, when I get into these discussions on Instagram, will say like, well, we need these companies because it's part of what keeps our food so cheap. But I found a I think it was a, a congressional report that actually found that at a certain scale, 
you don't get continued economies of scale from these consolidated corporations. Like Correct. you do, um, you know, you get like 20% efficiency at a certain size and then it's just diminishing returns from there. And you actually get the opposite result where they get so much power, you start paying more for products. Yes. Which is what has happened during COVID. You all have been paying more money for your beef, mm -hmm. which when we describe how the industry works, it really shouldn't be happening. But because they, you know, are able to get away with it, that's what's happening. Yeah. And another point is that when you have an industry like the meat industry where the market share, you only have like four or six corporations that control over 80% of the market share. A lot of times mergers and further consolidation actually has to get approved by like antitrust divisions yeah. of the government. And they always approve it. <laughs> they always approve it. And they, you know, in the instances of these companies, they've approved it in the money that they used to, you know, acquire these other companies and just consolidate control was, you know, achieved through, in the case of JBS, through loans they received mm -hmm. by giving bribes. Mm, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly, I allegedly. Their favorite I joke that, like, if I disappear into a black car, <laughs> it'll be like Cargill or possibly British Petroleum. British um, Petroleum, that would be a fun one. No, I wish I had enough listeners to be on their hit list. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay. Um, that also, just one more thing on that. We, the government then kind of helps perpetuate this system where it's like, it's too big to fail. So now we have to prop it up like, okay, yes, we, they're, you know, settling claims are paying the DOJ millions and millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of million dollars for this price fixing. But there's no actual, nothing more than a slap on the wrist because our food supply now is so freaking fragile that we have no recourse. So we saw this during COVID where, you know, it's like a certain percent of the employees got COVID and, and couldn't work. And the meat supply careened out of control. We had skyrocketing prices. We had the government paying hog farmers to asphyxiate hogs. Like this all happened within a matter of weeks. And so we don't actually have, and I think Tom Vilsack has said this, he yeah. said our food system is vulnerable. It's it's strong, it's efficient, and it's tremendously vulnerable. And oftentimes people don't realize that. And consumers, they're you know very disconnected, don't realize that until mm -hmm. there's something like the pandemic that happens. Yeah. And then everybody freaks out and goes kind of into panic mode. Right. And the COVID outbreaks at the you know JBS and meatpacking plants, I'm sure many of you probably heard stories about this when, when it was originally happening, but it really isn't a surprise when you look into the working conditions that they hold, right? there's, you know, all these horror stories around them not giving any paid sick leave. So then workers, regardless of how sick they were, regardless of whether they had COVID or not, would come in and work because they needed the money and the companies were essentially forcing them into that. And then if you even look, you know, further down the supply chain to a lot of the ranching operations in Brazil, then you find out that there's workers who are being held in slave-like conditions. No. They don't have access to medical care. They don't have clean water or toilets. They live in shacks created by, you know, branches and twigs. And I think the estimation out there is they get paid, you know, equivalent to like $10 a day. So a lot of these things are, you know, have happened year after year. But then when you have something like COVID that comes along, then everything just gets blown out of proportion. And then everybody realizes, as you said, 
oh shoot, we have a real problem with our food system. It really just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? It, it really, it really <laughs> does get worse and worse. So this is why I love to say like, I'm not just telling folks to buy directly from a rancher because I raise beef. Like I'd, I'd love people to buy my beef and my lamb, but it's not just about that. Like the ripple effects from individuals putting their dollars, taking their dollars away from Tyson, National, JBS, and Cargill. Those four names will be on my tombstone. It'll be like <laughs> Caroline Nelson hated. <laughs> um, it's It's got all these ripple effects. You know, it's taking away from these corporations that are not serving us, not serving the land. They're not even some of them in this country. And it's also circulating back into a local economy. You know, the money that oh, I yes. make from our beef, then I pay my abattoir, I pay my butcher, mm -hmm. you know, like it stays right here. So on that note, you've been doing a lot to share how folks can actually get involved and like find farmers. Can you tell us about, about that? Yeah. So I had this idea. I saw Karen Crest Farms, I believe is the name. It's in upstate New York. They had a beef map on their website. So I want to give credit to them because yeah. that's how I mm -hmm. had the inspiration for the idea. And I just saw it was, you know, sitting on their website, they sell, you know, regeneratively raised grass fed, grass finished beef, but they just had a map of all these other places across the United States. And I thought, what a great idea. They're using their platform to then promote other people across the country. And then I thought, oh, it's not really that hard. It'll take a lot of time, but it's really not that complex. So then I started building that and, you know, it started out where just everything was a map point in the same color and it was mostly beef and then it started getting more views and then I was like, oh, I should probably expand this and have it be fruit and produce and eggs and honey mm -hmm. and, you know, wild caught fish, all these different food sources and there was only so much I could add myself and a lot of people kept commenting, oh, we're here in, you know, South Dakota, and we want to have our place added. So I was like, okay, I should build a form. So then I put a form under the map. And again, this farm map is on my website. It's completely free to use, but I put a form under that. People can submit it. Then when they submit it, it just goes to my email. And then I'm able to just kind of like, you know, quickly vet it and then add it. And when I first made the videos about that, I probably within a day had 400 to 500 emails. Yeah. And I had to go through every single one. And then <laughs> me not having great foresight. Then I had on about 23, 2400, something like that. I think that's around the number now. You know, <gasps> places on wow. the farm map that's all local. You can find it. And they were all the same color. So then people were like, oh, it's really hard to differentiate what's what. So then I had to go back through <laughs> and color code every single one. So you'll see now that there's a, you know, kind of color key under it. So for beef, it's, you know, kind of like maroon red. And for honey, it's yellow, that type of thing, just to make it yeah. easier. But I think now it's been up for around two and a half months. And just like last week, I hit 100K views on it. And that's Matthew. simply, you know, that just stands out that people who are farmers and ranchers want to connect with local consumers and consumers mm -hmm. want to connect to farmers and ranchers in their area to be able to learn more about what they do and buy directly from them. Wow. First of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, you're welcome. It, well, it's going to take know, all of us. <laughs> It, exactly. That's what I say. And, and, you know, it's because of the great work of farmers and ranchers like yourself who, you know, only make up, I think, under 2% of our population that 
you know, I'm just highlighting all that all that you do. And I'm kind of just a voice for all the great work that's, you know, being done on your pastures and your land. Well, and I appreciate that so much. And I did want to ask you about your content. So for anybody, they're going to, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes, but your page, you have Instagram, you have TikTok, you're at my health forward on both, right? Correct. Yes. And your content is, you like dive right in, you just spit facts. And you also are, are such a great editor. So you'll have, you'll be speaking direct to camera. And then you've also edited in, you know, actual video of what you're talking about and what's going on. So people can really visualize it. Can you tell us about your content process? And also, like, how do you vet your sources? You're so fact based. And I just love that so much about everything that you do. How do you differentiate what you know, a good source versus a bad source? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, everything that I do, a lot of it starts with either a question that I just think of, you know, when I'm reading an article or observing something, or that somebody, you know, comments or DMs me. And then from there, I just, you know, keep diving deeper and deeper. So I really like to start with like local news sources, because I find Mm. that's where there's, you know, usually the least amount of bias, and it's the most accurate. And then from there, I go through, you know, if there's peer reviewed research or articles, if there's watchdog groups that have talked about it, if there's investigative journalists, if there's people who are kind of, you know, boots on the ground, farmers and ranchers in the area. And then, you know, kind of lastly is what have, you know, the kind of the big established media players said about it. And it's really just trying to find as much evidence from different sources that all corroborates and leads to kind of the same conclusion. And so, you know, obviously there's two sides to every story. And so I try as much as possible to get all of, you know, the facts. It's worthwhile Mm -hmm. to read things that are, you know, the disclosures by like JBS. That's oftentimes Mm -hmm. just as telling as what the people originally breaking the story said. Yes. And so you kind of really just have to look through everything. And then once you look through everything, then you get a really good idea of the picture. And I try as much as possible to, you know, remove my opinions mm-hmm. and my conclusions from the video. When I do, I try to make it very obvious. But in general, what I'm trying to get all the viewers to do is just to start thinking about it, get involved, mm-hmm. connect with their food sources. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be right 100% of the time like nobody is. None mm-hmm. of us are perfect. But what I really try to do is get as much, you know, evidence-backed research as possible and then present it to you all so that you can go forward and, you know, talk about it in your own circles, because our food system, you know, is something that we all really need to be much more connected to. I love what you said that um, you can actually find out a lot by what they don't say, and also what these corporations, their own statements. I've found that I was doing some research, again, this will have to be a podcast episode. I, oh, I say that a thousand times an episode, because um, I feel like these topics just spin out into yep. so many other things we could just dive deep on. It was the American Academy of Dietetics, I believe. So it's like mm-hmm. the national group of, you know, all the dietitians basically. And they're making recommendations to individual dietitians of here's what you tell children. Here's what you say to lactating mothers about what they should eat. And it came out that they'd been accepting sponsorships from like Kellogg's and Nestle and all these processed food corporations to... And now, of course, the Academy is like, well, we 
yes, we sold sponsorships. They didn't influence our nutritional it's, guidelines. It's always what they claim. That they, <laughs> the, the money that was paid to reach the conclusion that's wanted by the company mm -hmm. somehow had no impact on it. It had no impact, but it's so funny because their statements were like, yes, we indeed took millions from Nestle. Like they just are absolutely not refuting that and not refuting that it was like kind of a secret, you know, until until this these articles came out. I think The Guardian was talking about it. And this never got picked up by mainstream media because and I, I don't I don't ever get political on this podcast, but this is just a fact. These are simply facts. The um, the group that broke the story was like a conservative. Um, they were like anti COVID or anti anti yeah. um, vaccine, like suspicious or whatever. Mm -hmm. So nobody touched this story because they were like, it's tainted. It's tainted. But I went all the way into the American Academy of Dietetics tax returns to That's see research. for myself all the line items of these sponsorships and donations they got from these companies, but nobody would talk about it because of like the bias around it. Which which is crazy. And you know, it really goes to show how valuable the research being done by, you know, people such as yourself and anybody who's really diving deep and, you know, investigating this because mm -hmm. the corruption is so rampant that really in order to even mm -hmm. shed a little bit of light on it, you really have to <laughs> dig into everything that they don't want you to see. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we're talking about like bribery, this actually has also happened in the meatpacking industry. So JBS hired the former USDA senior policy advisor and chief of staff, Carla Thiemann, and she worked under, you know, our good friend Tom Vilsack. <laughs> yeah. And JBS created a new executive role that was titled Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Government Affairs. So we already know where this is leading. So <laughs> Thiemann works out of Washington, D.C., and public disclosures revealed that she started lobbying the USDA immediately after switching over from them to JBS. And so what I tried to find was, you know, exactly who they paid money to and the U.S. government. They, you know, I couldn't find that anywhere. All I know is that they disclosed that they spent at least 732000 in lobbying to this government in 2022. So we know that this is also happening with the USDA and in the beef packing industry. And when the National Cattlemen's Beef Association started cracking down on a lot of the scheming around price fixing and lobbying and extortion happening in the meatpacking industry, JBS actually exited the NCBA, which <laughs> just further goes to show that they are complicit in all of this and they just don't want to admit any wrongdoing. And you mentioned lobbying. So all of these industries and, the, and these corporations have massive lobbying groups in Washington. And one of the things that I that I think about all the time is that like no piece of, of agricultural legislation gets passed essentially without big corn, you know, stamp of approval, exactly. big soy. And I, and I, I know that like, I know soy farmers, I know corn farmers. I'm not saying it's like a ball, a big racket, but I, it is like six guys in a trench coat. When you simply start looking at all the way at the top, I'm not talking about the individual local salesman who comes around and sells you seed. That's, that's not what this is, but it's like, so much has come out about these sort of backroom, like smoky, smoky barroom deals that at this point, it's not um, sensational to look at what gets passed and what doesn't get passed with yeah. suspicion. We don't get to see we have so much dark money in our politics. It's not a fair fight. And 
there is only one U.S. senator who is an active farmer, only one, yes. and that's John Tester. And for John all the Tester, listeners out right. there, for all the listeners out there, he is introducing piece of legislation after piece of legislation that would benefit American farmers and ranchers, and they're all introduced, and then they're all essentially just stuck in Congress. So right. there are people out there, even in you know Washington, who are advocating for it. But there's very few of them. And that's, you know, where a lot of the, you know, ability of consumers to impact this besides their spending dollar lies is being able to talk directly to their politicians, because for the most part, politicians are impacted by, you know, who lobbies to them. But at their heart, it really should be what their constituents want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, if they decide not to do that, that's really not up to us. But what we Mm -hmm. can do is communicate to them very clearly what we want. Well said. Individuals are immeasurably powerful. I think about this all the time. Look at what you've done. You know, 100,000 views on your farm map alone. And I don't even know what, do you know what your views are on like all your content? Like it's millions and millions, right? Like, So it has to be, it has to be <laughs> millions and millions. I actually yeah. have never looked into like the weekly statistics or analytics mm-hmm. or data because my view is, you know, I'm just going to keep producing it. And it's mm-hmm. not really for the numbers. The numbers mm-hmm. help me understand, you know, on a video by video basis, what hooks work, what type of content people want, that mm-hmm. type of thing. But I don't actually, I probably should, but I don't actually scour through, you know, how many people watch it, because I think that might just get in my head. Yeah. And that's not really what it's about. It's just kind of about, you know, getting everybody involved. I think you're absolutely right. And I try to do the same thing. I, my rule is like, I, if I want this content to exist, whether or not anybody sees it, that's what mm-hmm. I'm putting out. And it's so funny because going back to kind of like this rise of citizen journalists, like it shouldn't have had to be you like in your college dorm room, like starting yeah. <laughs> to do research. It shouldn't have to be me. Like I sh- like, yes, I love talking about all this stuff, but mm-hmm. I do like, I am actually ranching. <laughs> You know, you know, it is very, I will say this type of research, it does take a really long time, you know, it could take nobody will ever see this It's probably the same for you. But for like a 30 second video, that could consistently be five hours of of research. And then it just it's and that's not considering then, you know, all the filming, uploading, editing, all of that. So when you see these short videos, it might look like oh, why is this only 60 seconds? But that's just kind of the, you know, how modern media works. In order to get the views, you really have to condense it and make it as fast as possible. Wow, I, that's so important. Yeah, people just see the tip of the iceberg. And this is why I so appreciate your work because I do see some agriculture folks and a lot of people in the n- nutrition space just fear-mongering. Yeah. I, I really don't like the dialogue around like, well, you just never know what's in your food. You might as well buy from a rancher because it's a mystery. It's like, I do, we have a very safe food system in the US. Like I've got bones to pick all over the place Mm -hmm. with it, but I never want to shame people or cause concern of like a parent shopping for their kid at the grocery store thinking this meat is not safe. Like that's never what I want to do. But anyway, I really commend you on what you're doing. It's tremendous it's very impactful you're the, i think you're the first man on the podcast too oh thank you that's a that's a great <laughs> honor that is a great <laughs> honor matthew thank you so much for being on choose wisely 
Will you tell everyone how to follow you and, and find your products? Yeah. So if you just look on Instagram or TikTok under the My Health Forward at, then you'll see my page. Please give me a follow. Feel free to shoot me a, a DM. You know, I try to go through as many as possible. You can also find on the bottom of my website, I have a number that you can text. That's what I usually recommend. That's where I'm most responsive. And then also on my website, which is, you know, as you guessed it, myhealthforward.com, you can find the farm map. You can also find partners, which I, I got to get you on that partner page too. Right now, I do have, I want to shout out Comfort Farms, which is run by John Jackson. And he was a combat veteran and he started Stag Vets to help other uh, combat veterans, you know, who are trying to transition back into active life to get into agriculture, specifically regenerative agriculture. So he's doing really great things there. And then the other one is White Oak Pastures. Obviously, okay. Will Harris is kind of, you know, this leader figure in the regenerative agriculture movement. So you can see partners page, you can see the farm map, you can get added to the email list. You can also see my products. Again, I have heirloom seeds, I have a regenerative supplement, the Alpine tea, a lot of other great things coming. And the you know what's unique about my approach is because i've developed all these great relationships with farmers and ranchers like caroline i'm able to then just source ingredients directly from them so that's really wow. not the you know the typical process mm -hmm. for health food space is buying directly but you know it really produces the most you know nutritious healthy products and it gives the most dollar to the people who raise the food and i think if there's one takeaway from this podcast episode, it's to get in touch with people who are raising and growing food local to you. If you drive around and start to pay attention, you'll see a lot of those little farm stands that say, you know, mm -hmm. farm fresh eggs. And when you open them up, you'll find, wow, these are, you know, green, these are blue, white. They're very fresh. They're usually like four or $5. You can find those type of things for every type of food you really want. And again, it'll spur local economy. It'll provide you with more healthy food. And then the goal is, moving forward, you just have that relationship. So then, you know, when you're hungry, when you need groceries, you don't have to go to the grocery store. It's, it's so profound. When COVID was happening and everybody was scrambling and, and processors, you know, were booked out two years, like we had enough of a local relationship just in our little valley. I'm like, okay, well, I know this person's producing dairy, this person's raising mm -hmm. vegetables. Like we were, and I always tell people, you know, if it feels overwhelming and it really can, and also it can feel like, oh, this is going to be so expensive. I can't afford to do this. I just have to stop at Walmart once a week and I have to make it quick and easy. And I totally get that. Um, you can just pick one thing. Maybe it's just eggs. Maybe it's just that you get a loaf of bread once a week from the local mm -hmm. um, farmer's market when it's in season. Like you don't have to make a huge commitment. I have found that it's when it's its own reward and when you treat it as fun and joyful to tap back into the local economy in your food shed, it's so delicious that you're like, wait, I actually want to get the eggs now too. Like I want to yeah. get the butter because it's just actually tastes better. And tastes weirdly, better. sometimes it's even cheaper than the grocery store. And that's a whole other topic because a lot of times farmers don't know their margins and they undercut That themselves. is very true. <laughs> anyway. Matthew, thank you so much. I would love to have you back one day. This has been so fun, so informative. And yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Caroline. This has been great. Thank you for joining me today on Choose Wisely. And thank you to Matthew of My Health Forward for sharing your 
mind-melting knowledge with us today. I was so fired up at the end of our conversation and we could have just talked for hours. I really hope you'll come back on the podcast and check out Matthew's farm map on his website, myhealthforward.com and check out his products and stay in touch with him because he's got a lot coming down the pike. To support Choose Wisely, we'd be so grateful if you would take 10 seconds and rate and review the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Choose Wisely Podcast, on Twitter at Choose Wisely Pod, and find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash choosewiselypodcast. If you've got a guest suggestion or comments you want to send in, you can email us at choosewiselypodcast at gmail.com. 